This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Yeah, when when people feel insecure in their society, or if people feel like different groups are being protected differently, or if that society is not there on an equal basis to care for, for my security, I think this is toxic in a society. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems. Before we get started, please be advised this episode includes discussion on sexual violence, human trafficking, and rape. I am honored to welcome European Commissioner for Home Affairs at the European Commission, Ulfa Johansson, to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Prior to her current role, Commissioner Johansson had various leading positions in the Swedish government and Swedish parliament. In her role today, she focuses on the global fight against organized crime and drug trafficking. For those who are not sort of familiar with how the European Union works, it's hard to overstate how important the portfolio of the Commissioner of the Justice and Home Affairs <laughs> Commissioner is. It's, it's an extremely important role at the heart of so many issues that the EU and the United States is grappling with. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's just an honor to have you. Thank you very much. As we get started, Smart Rooms Smart Power listeners know that we'd like to get started by getting to know who we're talking to. So I'd love to know what got you into this field? What drew you into politics and, and the European Union? Well, I've been into uh, Swedish politics for a very, very long time. I was appointed minister the first time when I was 30. Oh. And my twins were four months old. Oh, wait, wait, what? <laughs> so, you know, I've been I've been there for uh, for a while. I, I've been uh, four month old twins. Yeah, and, when and I was minister. appointed first time as minister, so that was a tough tough time, I must say. Yeah. But so I've been in five different Swedish government under three different prime ministers. So I, I've done a lot on the national level in politics. When I had this opportunity to become the EU commissioner, I was really, really grateful for that opportunity. I had a little bit that feeling that been so long time in national politics, it was time to do something else. And then when you when you shift, what is important on national level is not the same what is important on EU level because sometimes the competence is not on the EU level. Sure. So I wanted to have a portfolio that nobody can say, well, this should not EU deal with. This is better done right. on the national level. Right. So that was one reason why, why I thought that security and migration, nobody thinks that we can deal with it alone because right. so much is cross-border and not only in the EU, we also have to work with partners like US, of course. But then why I really wanted security is because I think that internal security is like the glue in a society that keeps us together. And so many people don't think about it. But when it doesn't work, yeah, when, when people feel insecure in their society, or if people feel like different groups are being protected differently, or if that society is not there on an equal basis to care for, for my security, 
I think this is toxic in a society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's so few very rich people that can care for their own security. Right. But all normal people, you know, we have to go on to public transport. You're working alone in a petrol station and you live in areas where there might be drug dealers. Of course, the risk of terrorist attacks or the risk of being a victim of domestic violence or rapes. or I mean, there are so many things. You can't privatize your security. You yeah. have to rely on society yeah. Yeah, that this mm-hmm. works. And, and if you have the feeling that society is not there to protect you, mm-hmm. or that if society is dealing you know, different with different groups of mm-hmm. women towards men or different ethnic groups, this is really toxic. Yeah. And, and we can also see globally when do people leave their countries, for example, on migration, is when they don't feel secure. It's yeah. not immediately when there is the lack of food or, or things like that, but when you don't feel secure. Or if organized criminal groups are taken over, then mm-hmm. people really leave because this is not where you are going. So I thought that this is really an area where politics can make a difference in security. So that's why I, I really wanted this portfolio. And also that is a clear cross-border <laughs> area. Mm-hmm. And I think this, if it doesn't work on the internal security, then a lot of other things that you can do to foster a, a good society will not make any sense. Do you find that some of these issues or debates are are almost difficult to have in national security or defense circles? Because what what I'm thinking of is how, at least in the defense world, we tend to think about defense as military widgets and great power competition and something external. But security is meaning so much more and it's so much more human-centered. Yes, it's much more human-centered. And I think this is important because sometimes I have the impression that it's like a hierarchy of what kind of crimes are the most important ones and other crimes are, are less important. And that is also like also gender perspective, where yes. I have this, you know, impression sometimes that terrible crimes that affects mainly women mm-hmm. tend to be, of course, everybody says they're horrible, but not really be on the priority where to put the money or the mm-hmm. efforts on police and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think I think it's important. So as you've taken on the role, what have been your priorities as Commissioner for Justice and Home Affairs? Well, my top priority, actually, child sexual abuse, because this is an area where I think that we fail massively to protect our children, especially when it comes to the online component. This is going on so massively. And very often, the only way to find a child is when the perpetrator posts the rape online. (gasps) And this is how we rescue children. And Council of Europe estimates that one child out of five experience sexual violence. And it's so it's so common and it's so hidden. And I also speak with, with the victims that can see that the worst moments of their lives is ongoing on, on, on Internet, you know, years afterwards. So they have to relive it. So I think this is an area really where we need to protect. Usually, when you look at how Internet companies, for example, works, they're usually better at protecting you from virus mm-hmm. than protecting children from being groomed by a perpetrator. So I think this is a little bit of the scale. Of course, it's important to protect us from virus. And that is, of course, I I think that is extremely important. But it's not only about protecting me. It's also protecting others, especially the vulnerable ones. So this is uh, one of my priorities. My other priority is the organized crime. We can see that the organized criminal groups, they are being more and more international. 
more and more professional, more and more violent. They are organized like uh, multinational businesses today yeah. and they are being infiltrating the illicit economy. They are using corruption. They are being more and more mafia typed. Mm-hmm. And this is not only in Europe, unfortunately, it's also in the US and yeah. many other areas. And they, you know, they deal with drugs, they deal with people, they deal with the traffic weapons. And this is also really a, a big, big threat towards a well-functioning mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. and right. security. Because once organized crime networks can establish rat lines or ways of penetration into societies, there's all kinds of things that can be moved yeah. along them. And so it's not just the random drug dealer or drugs problem per se. It becomes so much more massive when you think about all of the implications that, that yes. organized crime can have. And they can buy people with this money. And this is also where they how they can grow their businesses, of course. But it's also a way to destroy trust yeah. uh, in society. Mm-hmm. Those are some very heavy issues with which you're grappling and your team is grappling every day. How do you Keep your sanity. There's a Politico article, and it was an intelligence analyst talking about secondhand trauma and how, as an analyst, you know, she's seeing all sorts of different things that are really horrible and arguing that we need to be paying attention to mental health in our teams. And, and so just curious if you have a view on that. Not for me personally, I should say. Of course, it's a lot of terrible and heavy things to work with. But also, I'm 58 years old, you know, I'm, I'm pretty old. I've been here for a long time. I, I have a lot of competence. I have a lot of energy, strength, knowledge. My children are grown up now. And I think really I have also an obligation to use my capacity for others. Yeah. And now politics is my arena. So others have other arenas. If you have the capacity to do things also for others, I think you're obliged to do it. Then, of course, in different positions in your life or periods in life, or, or maybe you don't really feel that you have that capacity. But if you feel that you have it, I think you're also obliged to use it. Mm-hmm. So it's service. I think so. Yeah, a bit. So it's, I mean, of course, I also, you know, complain about too much work and too many late evenings and early mornings and all that. But I also think that it's a privilege. Yes. To have this opportunity. Well, so speaking of having impact and and driving forward on an issue, you know, here at Smart Women, Smart Power, we interrogate a decision or an issue that our guests wants to talk about and the role that gender played in in the decision or its outcome, if if at all. And so, Commissioner Johansson, the the decision you wanted to talk about today is your role in fighting the trafficking of women from Ukraine, and which is aided by leading women in law enforcement and other organizations. So maybe we start with what the EU is doing with Ukraine generally, and then we can drill down into what specifically is being done with trafficking of women. So when Putin invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, you know, we got the news early in the morning, at least I got the news early in the morning. Of course, I was afraid. And then I realized uh, very quickly that now a lot of people are going to flee Ukraine. So we had to uh, immediately set up extraordinary council meetings. And I went to the all the external borders uh, towards Ukraine to, to meet with the people, the border guards, all the volunteers that were there, but also seeing, you know, these queues of women and children. And they were frozen. They were tired. They were scared. 
could see that they put their bags together very quickly and they were so grateful with all the volunteers that welcomed them, all the, the civil society, all people that opened their homes. So it was really a big moment. And then I realized two things. First, I remember the, the refugee crisis we had in Europe in 2015, where we also have millions of Syrians mainly that came and where Europe failed actually to act united to support the refugees. And I remember that very, uh, very strongly. So I said to myself, this time we will not fail. So we have an old legislation, it's 20 years old, that should have been used in 2015, but was not. It's called the Temporary Protection Directive. So then I thought, this, we, now we need to activate this. That means that everybody that enters into the EU from Ukraine could have immediate protection, immediate right to school, housing, labor market, on an equal yeah. footing in all 27 member states. So that was one of my top priority to get it through. And I managed. I yes. managed to get a unanimous decision with all 27 within a week. That's extraordinary. Yeah, that was <laughs> extraordinary. So that means that, you know, we had more than 12 million people arriving from Ukraine. Many of them have gone back. So we have now around four, four and a half million mm-hmm. remaining that all have the same kind of protection. It's quite much four and a half million. Uh, and also we have 700,000 children in schools. You know, members that have to set up it very quickly. The other thing was, you know, when you saw all these women and children and then you saw all the cars holding up signs, I can take one adult, I can take two adults and two children. It was heartwarming to see, but I also realized how easy it will be for a perpetrator to pick up a woman and two children, for example, bring her home. And they say, of course, you can stay here and I will care for your children, but of course you need to pay and I will bring the customers. I just could see that in front yeah. of me, yeah, yeah. how easy yeah. it will yeah. be among yeah. all these millions arriving. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, war is a disaster for people, but it's an opportunity for criminals. Yes. Yeah? And then right. I already know that trafficking was already before the war a, a huge uh, problem and a huge terrible crime that we have in the European Union where mainly women and girls are being trafficked yeah. and mainly for sexual purposes. We had one case where young women were trafficked from one member state to another for sexual purposes and the trafficker actually tattooed them to say that they belong to him. So this is, I mean, this is a crime. It's not yeah. a new one. So I, I immediately saw that this is such a, a huge risk mm-hmm. that those mm-hmm. A frightened, uh, you know, frozen people that just come. They, of course, they hope that they will meet nice people that will take care. Yeah. So then we set up immediate awareness raising on on trafficking. A lot of signs we we activated. I have a network of anti-trafficking coordinators in all member states. We mm-hmm. activate that network immediately. Mm-hmm. I called the head of Europol, Catherine de Bolle, and said. We need to act. And she immediately set up a special task force at Europol to fight this. We were started working on an action plan together with the member states. We did a lot to not make this crime happen, actually. Right. We set up a hotline to, to call and mm-hmm. we come out with advice, you know, don't go uh, alone and always tell somebody where you are and all that. And of course, fingers crossed because we don't know. But now, after uh, so long time, we have very, very few trafficking cases related here. With four and a half million people, refugees, women and children, mm-hmm. yeah, you could guess that there would be uh, more, but we have very, very few. Like, I think you have 17 investigations. 17, one seven. Oh. Of course, there could be, you know, uh, hidden. Yeah, sure, so sure. I, I would not say that <clears throat> sure. uh, we have succeeded, but 
maybe we made some difference. And mm-hmm. that, of course, make me very comfortable. Uh, maybe I made some difference with, together, of course, with everybody else that's starting with this early awareness racing. How, how long did it take to set up those task forces? A few weeks. Just a few weeks? Yeah. Okay. So you got utilizing the directive for the... In one week. In one week. And then... And then we started on the trafficking thing. Yeah. Amazing. And, and, and was there any internal pushback on... No, no, no. Everybody sort of like, oh yeah, this is pretty obvious. Yes, it was. But of course, there could be a male commissioner as well. But I think it's it's maybe it's a little bit easier to imagine what could happen when you are in this vulnerable situation. And when I call the uh, head of of Europol, uh, the executive director, she's also a woman, and it was very easy to convince her (laughs) that that this is now now we need to act and we need to act quickly. So, of course, it could have been men as well. I I would not say that. But but I think it's important to, to realize that there are terrible crimes that sometimes are a little bit hidden because women are the main victims. And I think it's important to make sure that this is, um, this is really high up on the agenda and then you can make a difference. Would you say that being a woman has therefore impacted how, you know, the, how you've approached the, the role and, and, and these issues? I would not say 100% sure because there are a lot of men that will prioritize this as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I guess. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and it's it's really interesting. Like it's the prioritization of these issues that are often hidden. We had the Me Too movement in what, 2015, 2016. And all of a sudden our, our male colleagues were just like, wait, every woman I know has been affected by this. And so there's a difference in perception. There's a difference in experience that, that many women bring to the I table. I think so. And I think it's easy also when you reach out, for example, I have a very good relation with the Deputy Prime Minister in Ukraine, Olga Stefanishnia. And also and we had reached out on, on issues like uh, the Russian soldiers are, are using rape systematically yes. in, in Ukraine. And, and it's really terrible. It's not only women that are victims, but it's mainly women uh, and children also. And it's very easy to deal with her. And I think it's, you mm-hmm. know, when you can realize very quickly that this is really, really important. So now we are setting up victims, survivors centers in Ukraine that we are funding because that was something that she asked for, mm-hmm. for uh, all these victims of yeah. rape yeah, yeah, to get the physical, uh, medical psychological support that they need. We have also been working on to make sure that those that flee to Europe can get access to abortion if they need, for example. I think that, yes, it could, of course, have been also a male one. Sure. I, I, my answer is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you're visiting the, the States to take part in the EU-US Justice and Home Affairs Ministerial Meeting. Would you mind sort of sharing us some of the details, like what has been the priorities in the discussion, what the, the key outcomes? Yes, we had very good meetings, both with uh, Ali Mallorcas and Merrick Garland. And we have a lot in common that we work on. So we work on exchanging of information mainly for police cooperation. And we have a lot of real, real successful police cooperation between EU, member states, national police, Europol and FBI mainly on, on this uh, encrypted criminal communication like EncroChat, SkyCC, Anom. We had a recent very successful cracking down on a huge, huge uh, drug network called the Desert Light. 
So this is what we need to facilitate to make it quick and easy for the information exchange between the police when they work together. We have a special group working on ransomware together, uh, EU-US, that have now set up like a standard model how to deal with the ransomware so that police in different countries can work on the same model, so to say, so they know what they are searching for and it's easy, can, can find it. We are exchanging information on terrorists. They are very interested in the legislation I have put forward to fight child sexual abuse online. So we also talked about these issues. So I should say that we have a very good and very close cooperation and it's absolutely necessary. Yes. (laughs) Because there are very seldom now that we see organized criminal groups that are only active in EU member states. They are very often also active in not always in the US, but maybe in the, in other third countries. And that, of course, also US have a lot of information so we can, we can work together on this. Mm-hmm. And has the information flows between the EU and the US, has it been consistently improving? Yes, significantly yep. Uh, yep. over the last year, I should say. Yes. So this is really something that we have been focusing on and we have seen a lot of deliverables here. Commissioner Johansson, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing such important insights, not just into how you are approaching the role, but also some of the key priorities for the EU in this area, transatlantic cooperation, and reminding us how service can save us. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.